0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode number 16 of The Right Take. I'm Eric Lendrum. I'm Jacob Grandstaff. And there are few feelings, in my opinion, truly greater than feeling validated over something where you, you go against the grain, you go against the popular trend, you know, and then you end up being proven right. I don't want to use the term hipster, but it is kind of maybe along that same mentality, only when it comes to political issues and political trends, of course. And I am definitely feeling all the more grateful now that I have not, and definitely have no intention of taking any of the coronavirus vaccines. I've talked to some of my friends about it, who say that yeah, they're ultimately going through with it, and they're discussing which of the three to get because you know there's Johnson and Johnson, there's Pfizer, and there's Moderna. And actually, recently, one of my friends told me that he has heard oh, kind of all around that Johnson and Johnson is the one everyone is really going for. Uh, for among other reasons, that's a brand we all know, right? They produced a lot of. Uh, bath products and just all kinds of uh, body care related products. And it's a, it's a well-known brand. And it's the only vaccine out of those three, to my knowledge, where you only have to get one shot, you know, one injection, whereas the other two, Moderna and Pfizer, you have to get multiple injections. So pretty bad news for Johnson & Johnson and all the millions of people who have taken that vaccine. This is from a, a Facebook page, a great Facebook page, by the way. If you guys haven't followed this one, you should definitely like this page, and follow this page. It's called Unbiased America. And they always do a fantastic job of presenting the details of major news events, breaking news, political topics. And they always cite multiple sources, two to three reliable sources usually at the bottom of their posts. And they just kind of summarize whatever's going on. So definitely. And you can tell that they are right wing. They, they don't care for political correctness or the left or anything like that. It's a solid page. Unbiased America. Go give it a like on Facebook. Our friends at Unbiased America. Headline, breaking news, CDC and FDA recommend U.S. stop using Johnson & Johnson vaccine while it reviews blood clots that occurred in six people out of the 6.8 million who have received it. The two agencies released a joint statement saying they will conduct a review of, quote, six reported U.S. cases of a rare and severe type of blood clot in individuals after receiving the J&J vaccine. Until the process is complete... We are recommending a pause in the use of this vaccine out of an abundance of caution, end quote. The six cases, the post goes on to say, the six cases occurred in women between the ages of 18 and 48 with symptoms beginning six to 13 days after vaccination. One woman died and a second woman has been hospitalized in critical condition. The statement then went on to also add, quote, people who have received the J&J vaccine who develop severe headache... Abdominal pain, leg pain, or shortness of breath within three weeks after vaccination should contact their healthcare provider. End quote. You know, gee, it's it's almost like rushing a vaccine into production, into mass production, and subsequently distributing that rushed experimental vaccine to millions and tens of millions and hundreds of millions of people, all for a disease that is basically just a Chinese knockoff of the flu, might have been a bad idea, Jacob.
1: Well, I mean, this is particularly disappointing because the hope was we could get most of the people that need to be vaccinated that are in danger like elderly and those who have pre-existing conditions vaccinated by summer. I think currently we're at 15 percent of American citizens have received both doses of the Pfizer, or both doses of the Moderna vaccine. And I was actually planning on getting the Johnson & Johnson vaccine probably sometime in May or June But this is like you said, this does show that people who were concerned about rushing these vaccines to market are kind of vindicated because whenever you've got a brand new disease like coronavirus, you do need time to not only to test the vaccines, but also to get the public feeling comfortable with taking the vaccines. And this doesn't just like the AstraZeneca situation, this doesn't inspire confidence among Americans. And the thing is that most Americans compared to Europeans are actually more open to taking the vaccine. And I think you're going to see a drop in the percentage of people who actually trust the vaccines after this situation.
0: Yeah, and you mentioned that the most important thing, too, was getting the, uh, getting the vaccine to the at-risk population, the elderly, you know, people in their 60s, 70s, and 80s. And as the, the Post notes, this blood clot occurred in women between the ages of 18 and 48. So not quite those at-risk groups. Not This is not happening, thank God. This is not happening among elderly people, at least not yet. But women as young as 18 who are within the safest groups health-wise for this kind of virus are turning around and now risking this. Again, one woman died and another is hospitalized in critical condition, which I can guarantee you that unless in the rarest of cases, they would not have suffered similar effects from just catching the virus. They might have been just better off Catching the virus and quickly developing an immunity to it and getting the antibodies so then they would not even have to have the vaccine. This is just – and again, this is on a small scale, only six people out of 6.8 million, but this could very well expand rapidly to other people. This could become a problem in many others who took the vaccine. So it is just – it's really depressing. It's scary, but – this is what happens, especially when you have the government and the media working together to spread this nonstop propaganda. That you must get vaccinated. You have to get vaccinated. It's your duty to get vaccinated. Rah, 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 all that nonsense. So,
1: I mean, this is this is something that's really concerning. The fact that all the big tech companies, all the, and the news media and the Biden administration are working together to suppress any kind of criticism of the vaccines or any even any kind of discussion that maybe people should think little bit harder before they get the vaccine. Maybe people should do their research a little bit. You know, they should do a little bit more research on it. But, um, but this is something that's concerning. It's like the media and the Biden administration have blinders on, and their goal is to get as many Americans vaccinated as quickly as possible. They want to get to that eighty. They hit that eighty percent that Fauci said that we need to hit before we can finally take the mask off and go back to normal. But. I mean, that 80 percent, you're looking at 2021 if we continue to vaccinate, I mean, 2022, if if we continue to vaccinate people at this current rate. And what if it turns out that the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines were also problematic? Then it turns out that there are side effects that we don't know about that we don't find out until 80 percent of the population has been vaccinated. I mean, this is something – this is the problem whenever you have a media industrial complex and a big tech complex that are working together. They squash all heretics. They don't allow any discussion. Facebook and all these other tech companies they are censoring any negative, any criticism of the vaccine. They're censoring doctors, people, you know, medical doctors who have questions who have criticisms of the way that these vaccines were rolled out, who have questions about whether or not they're safe. They're, they're squashing all criticism. They're treating anyone who is critical. Or just want to bring up question, you know, just discuss the issue. They're treating everyone as if they're all anti-vaxxers, when in reality, most of the critics of these vaccines, most of the skeptics are not anti-vaxxers. The vast majority of the people who are bringing criticisms to the table, they all support the flu vaccine. They all support every other vaccine that's on the market that's been approved by the FDA and many of them even support the the Pfizer vaccine. They're just they're they have questions about the Johnson Johnson vaccine. They have questions about the the way that the government and the media are going about squashing any criticism of it. But anytime that you're suppressing medical discussion of a vaccine, I think it's going it's to cause it's going to cause people to be skeptical. It's going to cause people not to want to get the vaccine. And this is something that Rand Paul pointed out whenever he was questioning Fauci about a month ago. Fauci is insisting that people continue to wear the mask even after they've been vaccinated. But so right now around D.C., you have people that are, have been vaccinated and they're still going around with masks on. But that doesn't inspire confidence in getting the vaccine. Like if I'm going to get the vaccine, I want to know that this is going to protect me to the extent that I can go back to you know, not wearing a mask. But with with the Johnson Johnson situation this may be we may be looking at a, a year or so before we can finally be sure that the vaccines are safe and uh, that we can you know get vaccinated and go back to life as normal
0: it is all just such a scam that's that's one of the simplest words and most accurate words i think anybody can use but you know what's an even bigger scam than big pharma and big tech and the government trying to push these Flawed vaccines, on us, Jacob. You know, a bigger even one of the few things in existence. That's a bigger scam. Black Lives Matter. Bingo. <laughs> okay, this is just too good. This. Um. Oh man, where do we begin? Well, I, I let's just uh, dive right into this. This is an article that I wrote uh, just yesterday for American Greatness. One of the co-founders of Black Lives Matter has really been demonstrating how oppressed she really is. I mean, this is this is some serious just poverty, discrimination of the worst kind. 37-year-old Patrice Colors has bought four homes across the United States since 2016, three of them in California, one in Georgia. Her most recent purchase was a 2,370-square-foot home in the Malibu neighborhood of Topanga, California – Topanga? Topanga? I'm not entirely sure – in Los Angeles – The home consists of two separate houses on a larger property that is referred to as a ranch, you know, that that they're actually calling it a ranch because that's a California thing, worth approximately $1.4 million. This is the fourth such home that she has bought over the last four years. The first home she bought in 2016 shortly after marrying fellow activist Janiya Khan, who's a woman, of course, they're lesbians. That first home was in Inglewood, California. At the time, they purchased it for about five hundred and ten thousand dollars. That home featured three bedrooms and one and a half bathrooms and is now estimated to be worth at least eight hundred thousand dollars. In 2018, they purchased a seventeen hundred and twenty five square foot four bedroom house for approximately five hundred and ninety thousand dollars located in South Los Angeles with that home now estimated to be worth seven hundred and twenty thousand. In twenty twenty, this was my favorite one. The two of them bought a house in Conyers, Georgia, worth only about $415,000, which that's the cheapest price-wise out of all of them. But then, of course, you realize that's in Georgia, so of course it's going to be cheaper. But get a load of this description. This blew my mind. That home contains three bedrooms, two baths, an indoor swimming pool, (laughs) its own RV shop, as well as its own private hangar and private (laughs) runway. Runway. I mean, all she needs left at that point is an underground bunker with a missile silo, and she'll be complete with the kind of base that a James Bond villain would have. (laughs) Like, this is just – is this live and let die all over again? This is just – I can't believe it. Only only in America could you start a movement called Black Lives Matter and do nothing but preach about how oppressed you are and then use that movement to make millions and millions of dollars – To buy four homes across the country, including one with a private hangar. And that's not even they're not even done yet. Apparently, they also turned to they have recently been touring properties in the Bahamas at a luxury resort called the Albany. They haven't bought anything yet. But anonymous sources say anonymous witnesses allegedly say that the couple was seen touring properties in the Bahamas for potential purchases. So this is just I mean, all that can be said is that. Wow, it, it really it really pays to be oppressed, doesn't it?
1: Well, I hope that all the, the middle-class white people who donated to Black Lives Matter, I hope that they feel that the sin burden has been lifted off their shoulders. I hope they feel that they've been forgiven for their white guilt That now that these activists have these four multi, uh, multimillion-dollar homes to live in. I mean this is what they've been donating to, all that money. Uh, you think about all the hundreds of millions of dollars that was given to Black Lives Matter over the past summer after the George Floyd death. They, every single corporation, every single social media – company was just constantly bombarding white people with links to donate to Black Lives Matter. and People were donating, people were given out of the goodness of their hearts because they felt guilt for slavery, for all the oppression that has has occurred against black Americans. And, uh, and you know, they were they were given money to try to relieve their guilt the same way that people in Germany, you know, when the German states in the Middle Ages were given money to pay for indulgences. To basically buy their way into heaven, and this is how so many middle-class liberal white people have been acting over the past year. So I, I hope they, I hope they feel that their guilt of their of their white sins and the sins of their white ancestors has finally been wiped away. Now that these black activists are living in luxury, while people in the in inner cities and in black neighborhoods are still living in poverty, like all this money that they gave to Black Lives Matter, so. These two black lesbians can have a runway, have a private runway and an indoor pool and have four homes.
0: And th- that's actually one more thing too is not just the the value of the houses, but especially this most recent one they bought again in Malibu in the neighborhood of Topanga. T- Topanga. I have no idea how to pronounce that. Uh, let's take a look. This this comes for courtesy of our friend uh, Ashley Goldenberg, a.k.a. Communism Kills, who posted this on Gab. I was actually not aware of this, but you take a look at the description, the various uh, – Measurements of income and whatnot, and the various demographics, shall we say, of this area, this Malibu neighborhood, where their fourth, their most recent home is located. The population is just over 7,000. The median household income is $125,479. The median property value, $1.02 million. And, uh, You want to take a wild guess, Jacob, if you don't already know the answer of the demographics of this particular neighborhood?
1: I'm going to guess it's similar to the demographics,
0: just like the income average of Arlington, Virginia. White alone, not Hispanic or Latino percentage of the population, 79.6 percent. Hispanic or Latino, 8.8 percent. Asian, 6.7 percent. Black or African American one point eight percent. So that nothing that like you said too, nothing says solidarity with their oppressed, you know, black Americans who are living in poverty, who are living in, in terrible conditions in rundown neighborhoods. Nothing says, oh yeah, I'm in solidarity with these people that I represent and speak for through my movement, then I'm buying a mansion in an eighty percent white neighborhood. It's just it is. Absolutely hysterical. Well, it's kind of like the Obamas uh,
1: buying a house. I believe their house oh, Ma- in Mar- D.C. was in Northwest, and then another one in Martha's Vineyard. Martha's
0: Vineyard, yeah.
1: Similar, similar demographics to this neighborhood.
0: Oh my! This, this is just this is fascinating to me. This I again, mean, again, you know, nothing's going to happen. Like, yeah, a few Black Lives Matter activists have actually called her out over this. One such example is Hawk Newsom, who's the leader of uh, the Black Lives Matter of Greater New York, who famously. When on Fox News, I think it was Laura Ingram's show, if I recall correctly, and he said on Fox News on live national television, he said, you know, we, we want to change the system. If we can't change the system, we're going to burn it down. Hardcore radical. He actually did uh, call her out and said, quote, if you go around calling yourself a socialist, which she has, she has, she's a self-described Marxist. You have to ask how much of her own personal money is going to charitable causes. It makes people doubt the validity of the movement. He also called for, quote, black firms and black accountants to go in there and find out where the money is going. (laughs) So uh, maybe there will be some fracturing in this movement. We don't know. Again, the media is certainly not going to cover it. But let's go ahead and just wait and see and find out if perhaps they will reap uh, what they sow when it comes to – Using these movements for their own personal gain.
1: Well, I remember there was one episode last year. This was actually at the he- in the heat of the riots. On the there was a guest. He was some black celebrity. I can't remember his name. I'd have to go back to YouTube and look it up. But he was a guest on the Breakfast Club, and he was asked about his opinion on Black Lives Matter, and he just flatly said, "I don't support it." Now, this this guy, he is a black, you know, very strong black identitarian. Like he's not a conservative by any stretch of the imagination. But he just flatly said, "I don't support it." And I can't remember the guy uh, uh, who's who's it on the on the Breakfast Club, Charlemagne uh, God. Yeah, he asked him, "Why don't you support?" Because he's confused, like, "Why don't you support this?" He said, and the the celebrity he had on. He said, "Because it's not our movement." He said, "This is Soros and his boys that are supporting this. This isn't Ooh, Black people's movement." He based. said, "Yeah, well, he said that this is the those three lesbians they got they got this started, and they're taking in money from Soros and his boys and you know, Wall Street and left wing." White billionaires and uh, and Charlemagne the God said, "Well, back in the '60s, of course, Charlemagne the God is a radical. He is every bit as much of a radical as the '60s Black Panthers and uh, those radicals." And he said, "Well, he pointed out that back in those days, the Black Panthers they would go around. Uh, I don't remember the names. I have to, to go back and watch it, but like the the big names in the Black Panther movement and the Black radicals, they would go around to to rich white neighborhoods in Los Angeles and they would solicit donations. They would talk about their their calls. They would talk about what they were trying to do." And these uh, these white folks, these rich white folks, they would open up their you know their their checkbooks and they would write big checks to these movements, the Black Panthers, to basically uh, to to solve their white guilts, kind of kind of like leftists today. And this guy, he said, yeah, well, they'd write ten thousand check, ten thousand dollar checks, twelve thousand dollar checks. They wouldn't write no forty million dollar check. You know, they wouldn't donate tens of millions of dollars. He said, this isn't this is very obvious. Something else that doesn't have black people's welfare at heart. Like, I mean, even if, if you disagree with the Black Panthers, like you could at least you couldn't accuse them of not having black people's welfare at heart. Like, obviously, they were radicals. They were anti-America. But they did have black people's best interest at heart as they understood it. So and for that reason, they weren't getting donations for tens of millions of dollars. And this is what this is the what he was pointing out. Like, this is something – this is obviously a club by the rich for the rich, and they're using black people to to gin up sympathy for from rich white people to write checks to them. But black Lives Matter is more than simply a racket. It's more than simply a way for elites to enrich themselves off of people based on real problems. The problem with Black Lives Matter is it has real-world consequences for people. There's a Boston-area hospital that decided recently they're going to actively discriminate against white patients in order to make up for alleged past discrimination against black people. This is I'm not I'm not making this up. This is an actual this is from and this is from a leftist website. World the World Socialist website Amid a resurgence of coronavirus pandemic in the United States and internationally, an explicitly racially racially based health care program will be implemented later this spring at Brigham and Women's Hospital, a globally known medical center in Boston. The currently unnamed program is discussed at length in a March 17 article, An Anti-Racist Agenda for Medicine, authored by Bram Wispelui and Michelle Morse and published in the Boston Review. According to the article, The new pilot initiative uses a reparations framework that focuses on black and Latinx patients and community members who, according to the authors, have been the most impacted by unjust heart failure management under whose direction appropriate restitution can begin to take shape. They insist, moreover, that the Boston initiative be a replicable pilot program to be launched in hospitals across the country. This program would offer, quote, preferential care based on race and race explicit interventions, according to Wispoli and Morse. It must be stated um, – read, again, reading from the article – it must be stated from the outset that not only is such a racially-based program medically unethical, it is illegal. According to Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, quote, No person in the United States shall on the ground of race, color, or national origin be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under any program or activity, including education, health care, housing, social services. Both authors are aware of the illegality of their proposal, talking about both authors who proposed this in the Boston Review. Uh, this is, quote, and this is they're quoting from the two authors who proposed it, quote, offering preferential care based on race or ethnicity may elicit legal challenges from our system of colorblind law. The authors then go on to attempt to justify their attack on the Civil Rights Act by asserting that the existence of, quote, ample current evidence that our health, judicial and other systems are already They already unfairly prefer people who are white, and that, quote, our approach is corrective and therefore mandated. As evidence, Wisp, I'm going to try to get this name right, Wisp Pillowy, and Morse present their observation that, quote, white patients at Brigham and Women's Hospital were indeed more likely to be admitted to the cardiology service than black patients. More broadly, the two authors suggest or they assert rather that the disparities that they observe, their, that these health inequities were not, quote, fully accounted for by insurance status, established links to care, other medical conditions, or an index reflecting the socioeconomic status of a patient's neighborhood. But what's interesting is this socialist website, they point out that in the journal article, the data that the authors link to doesn't actually support their argument. In fact, one article that they linked is misleadingly titled Heart Failure Admission Service Triage Study, Racialized Differences in Perceived Patient Self-Advocacy as a Driver of Admission Inequities. Its concluding section begins by noting, quote, Theorized drivers of racial inequities in admission service did not reach statistical significance. In other words, the article linked by the authors does not provide significant statistical evidence of racial differences in treatment. But I'm sure the authors assume that the people who are reading their article aren't going to actually dive into the details of the articles that they're citing to see if the evidence, their so-called evidence that they're providing actually supports their point. And if you're reading this article, you've already got this supposition going into it. You already believe this going into it. They're essentially preaching to the choir. They don't need to prove their point. They can just because people reading it are it's kind of like if you were to read a journal article in a in a medical journal in China, you know, nobody reading the the article is going to disagree with the party's platform no one reading that article is going to disagree with the ccp everyone already agrees with the chinese communist party so there's if they say that this is the way it is let's say it's a coronavirus related article and they're saying that according to the, to the party this is where coronavirus occurred or spread or originated. No one reading that journal article is going to disagree. And if they do, they're going to keep their mouth shut about it. So that's kind of the way it is with American academic journals. All right, moving on. The underlying ideology behind the attempt to impose race-based health care is known as critical race theory. Now, keep in mind, these are socialists who are writing this article. Uh, critical race theory holds that social inequality is caused by white racism against, quote, people of color. Critical race theory obscures the basic source of inequality, class society. The so-called public health critical race framework has emerged in direct opposition to modern medical practice. The basic tenet of this theory is that if one is of the correct color, one is entitled to preferential treatment. This is a right-wing position which explicitly denounces calls for unity across racial lines in a struggle for quality health care for all. So this is something that people – that socialists have been claiming have been accusing people on the right of being. The people, socialists for decades have been accusing right-wing people of being racist, of saying – of wanting to support a system that prefers the majority race over minority races. But then they turn around and they see that my, the minorities are actually using this same theory, advocating for preferential treatment for them, their so-called allies. So moving on from this framework flows the claim that the underlying problem in healthcare is structural racism. The only solution is for Brighams and other hospitals to carry out reparations termed as medical restitution to those deemed to have suffered from the hospital's supposed unjust practices. According to the Boston Review, authors, such restitution would involve at the very least cash transfers and discounted or free care. So if you put this into practice, what that would mean is that black patients are going to have they're going to get discounted or free care. Um, or at least get cash transfers to make up to restitute for the for the cost of health care. In other words, give free health care to black people. White people have to pay for their care because they haven't traditionally been discriminated against.
0: I imagine that's going to probably go as well as what uh, that, that governor of Kentucky, what's his name, that Democrat, Andy Bashir, last year literally proposed that uh, he would give – free health care to all black people in kentucky just because they're black yes i, I, I remember that i remember in the moment that came out i was like there's no way the courts are going to uphold that that is definitely gonna get struck down at some point but he went the point is that he went for that announcement anyway like he said he was going to do it so even if they're not able to do it they're still going to signal that they would if they could and they're going to pretend like they could because that's you know that's part of their broader agenda at this point
1: this is what happens whenever you have and this is the whole purpose of black lives matter they take an isolated incident like the death of george floyd which probably wasn't even caused by Derek chauvin's kneeling on his back or his, his upper back or his neck it probably was completely unrelated to that but they use that to air their grievances and of course preach the gospel of of inequality the gospel of systemic racism and in hopes that Governors will discriminate against white people and give black people special treatment as a result of the outrage and the, and the guilt that comes from the death of, of a black person who dies at the hands of police. But yes, so the governor in Kentucky, of course, this is completely unconstitutional. It's completely illegal. And ironically, it's illegal because of a law that was implemented to protect black people from discrimination. Like the Civil Rights Act was created because black people were being discriminated against and they wanted to stop that from happening. And now we see the exact reverse happening where they want to discriminate against non-black people, specifically white people. And now people are going to have to sue using the Civil Rights Act to protect white people from this kind of discrimination. It just goes to show that the Black Lives Matter movement and the so-called civil rights activists today—they're not interested in equality. They don't believe in equality. They want—they believe that America is a caste system, and as we're going to see, I was—we're going to see in a little bit. They believe that the United States is a caste system much as India is a caste system, and they want their race to be at the top of the caste system. They want just
0: reverse Jim Crow at this point. Well, they want they want racial revenge, not racial justice. They want
1: racial re- revenge, but I don't even think most of them believe that a nation in which you have people who are treated equally is possible. They've completely given up on that notion. They see the United States as a caste system, and they're like, okay, well, since the, the United States is a caste system, there's nothing we can do to change this. Let's just use the caste system in our advantage. Let's let's take advantage of the caste system and let's just dethrone white people and put black people at the top of the caste system. Let's just switch the – let's just reverse the roles since they don't – they see the opportunity for equality as being hopeless. They don't believe in equality anymore. But going back to the so, the socialist article – Um, So moving on, it says, um, so these conceptions are promoted by the highest levels of the Democratic Party. Wispeloy and Morse note that they were encouraged by other institutions to proceed confidently on behalf of equity and racial justice with backing provided by recent White House executive orders. One of the orders to which the authors allude was signed by President Biden on his first day in office calling for, quote, advancing racial equity in the face of, quote, systemic racism. Like many other Democratic Party initiatives, Biden's executive order has nothing to do with genuine social equality. Equity is a term that has been developed in recent years by representatives of the black upper middle class. And they're, they're not wrong about this. They're 100 percent they're correct. So this has been uh, developed in recent years by representatives of the black upper middle class and the black bourgeoisie to sound like equality, which has deep resonance in the working class while in reality denoting something very different. It is a coded appeal to the narrow layers of African-Americans who have grown wealthy by utilizing racial politics to carve out a bigger slice of the wealth of the top 10 percent but envy those richer than themselves. It is Richard Nixon's right-wing call for black capitalism in a somewhat less discredited and more deceptive packaging. With this order, Biden sent a message to these reactionary elements within minority populations that he would look after their interest and shield them from the anger of the working class of all races whose living standards have declined as a result of the same social and economic policies that have led to a vast concentration of income and wealth among the top 10 percent, and especially the top 5 percent and 1 percent of the economic ladder. Yeah, I can't disagree at all with the socialists. I mean they're 100 percent correct about what's been going on in this country. And if you remember back in the first episode that we recorded, I pointed out that the Democratic Party has two wings. It has a black upper middle class and it has a white upper middle class. The white upper middle class is most concerned about climate change and the black upper middle class is most concerned about black – about uh, – well, they're most concerned about maintaining their status and their power – And doing that through black nationalism and the white upper middle class is trying to scare the working class into believing that the world is going to come to an end if they don't support their initiatives, which basically is just going to reorient money, take money away from the working class and give it to their companies and their firms like shutting down the Keystone XL pipeline, taking jobs away from the working class and siphoning it into green energy companies that's going to fill their coffers. The black upper middle class is trying to rile up the black working class to believe that all white people are out to get them, that the police are out to get them and are hunting them down like they're, they're birds of prey. So the black working class will continue to support the black upper, um, the upper middle class and the black elites. So you have a two-tiered system whereby you have black elites and white elites who run the Democratic Party and their platforms are black nationalism and climate change. So the socialists they get this right. This is one thing that Republicans don't understand. They see woke culture, they see cancel culture, they see Black Lives Matter, and they immediately think that it's all socialist. That because in their in their world, the 1980s, the world that they came up in, you had good versus evil, you had capitalism versus communism, socialism and and free markets. But socialist, real socialists, don't have anything in common with Black Lives Matter. Real socialists have absolutely nothing in common with the critical race theorist, So the socialist is completely correct. It says it is an attempt to cover up the uh, cover up in particular, the massive growth inequality among African-Americans from 2007 to 2016, the period of the Obama presidency, average family health care costs rose from roughly 13,000 to 19,000. More than 20 million Americans were without health care when the left, when he left office, talking about when Obama left office. The authors and colleagues who helped write the studies referenced uh, referenced are not oriented to improving the lives of this layer of the population. They hail Joe Biden as a figure who will still fight for equity, civil rights and racial justice. They are willing to overlook Biden's responsibility for the mass incarceration of millions of impoverished African-American men, as well as Kamala Harris's role in keeping them imprisoned in California, provided their class position and guarantees of special access to political business perks are protected. Above all, calls for race-based health care are aimed at blocking the emergence of a unified movement of the working class against corporate profits and the capitalist system that is the source of inequality, poverty, and racial discrimination. Genuine progressive movements have always fought for unity across racial lines, not the stratification and division of the working class. And so it's very rare that you actually find genuine socialist or genuine progressives who believe in class-based equality who want to try to eliminate the wealth gap. You know, This is something that we heard a lot about during the Occupy Wall Street protests about the wealth gap, how the the 1 percent is hogging all the wealth and the people at the bottom, 99 percent. They're having to fight for for the scraps that fall off their master's table. We don't hear about that anymore. It's it's real funny. In the in the 2020 presidential campaign, you didn't hear – on the Democratic side, you heard very little about class. You heard very little about the wealth gap, and it's because the cultural Marxists and the uh, critical race theorists have completely pushed out the working class because now they, they found that ethnicity is a much more powerful uniter than class, and this is true. People are always going to be more loyal to their ethnicity than they are their class. Working-class black people have more in common, or at least they believe they have more in common with other black people even if those black people are rich, and the same holds true with white people. Ethnicity is always a much stronger bond than class, and it's exasperating socialists because they're looking around. They're saying why are these people electing people like Joe Biden? Joe Biden does not have the working-class interest at heart. And it's because the strategists and the, the the pundits, they understood what they needed to do to win the population. And by scaring people um, based on race rather than class, they would have more success at the polls. But I want to talk about this, this issue for a second on the, the idea that, w- that we have inequities in the medical profession. So systemic racism is something that we hear about as far as financial, as far as the markets go. People argue that black people – aren't able to progress because they're being held back by systemic racism in business. They're not able to get jobs like white people are. But this is another tier of this whole critical race theory that we've seen come to fruition. Of course, uh, Bashir has wanted to give free health care to black people because they've allegedly been discriminated against in the medical profession. So where did all this come from? Now, most of the scholarship for critical race theory comes from black intellectuals, particularly academics at historically black colleges and universities or HBCUs. There's this journal article from 2002. So this is far, this is more than a decade before Black Lives Matter even came into existence. So this is before the Twitter era. This is part of the root before of, the
0: dark times, <laughs> before the empire, yeah, before the rise of the a Black sim- Lives Matter empire. A simpler time.
1: So this, and you know, this was back before people were, had moved into the era of when they were kind of stopping to think about race. Like people had just they had moved past the 60s, all the radicalism and the the racial tensions of the 60s had faded from memory. Uh, even the even the '90s, like even the um, the, the uh, what was the what was that uh, the issue in Los Angeles in '92, the shooting, the Rodney the, King the, riots, like the Rodney King riots, they had faded from memory. Like we were moving into the new millennium, we were moving into a colorblind society. But these strands of 1960s radicalism, you know, the thing is, the the 1960s, we had all of the roots of what we're seeing today back then, but. And the middle-class Americans didn't have to confront this version of the left because at the time we were in a Cold War with the Soviet Union. So the FBI can move into these radical anti-Western civilization movements and, and destroy them, disrupt them, throw them in prison, and people would be fine with it because at the time nobody was focused on this stuff. People saw the danger as being externalists from the Soviet Union, and anyone who was radical on the left – It was very easy to tie them into the Soviet Union and to get the middle class to turn against them, even if they – even if you could convince a middle class white person in the 1960s that there was systemic racism, they would still be scared out of their mind by the Soviet Union that they wouldn't want anything to do with people who could potentially be tied to communists. Once the Soviet Union fell though, the right was going to eventually have to deal with people who rejected Western civilization. Because the thing is, socialists are part of Western civilization. Socialist thought came out of the West. Karl Marx, he was a German. All this, all the major socialist thinkers were Europeans. So the this anti-Western civilization brand, they have to reject all facets of Western civilization, including socialism. So that's why you're seeing a rift between actual socialists and the critical race theorists. But the radical, the anti-Western civilization black nationalists, those who wanted to create – Wanted to, wanted to kind of uh, recreate almost like uh, uh, an African influenced civilization in the United States that was black dominated. They had to go underground, and the place that they went underground was, of course, academia, which is where most of the Marxists also went underground. So, Camera Phyllis Jones, she's uh, she's writing in the in the journal. This is an article from two thousand two. This is in the uh, journal Phylon. It's a journal founded by W. B. Du Bois in nineteen forty. It's a scholarly journal uh, out of Clark Atlanta University and HBCU in um, in Georgia. So this is the name of this is Confronting Institutionalized Racism. So she uh, she starts out talking about the public health community's initiative to eliminate racial and ethnic health disparities. This initiative was from February 1998, and the goal was to completely eliminate racial and ethnic health disparities in the United States by the year 2010. She starts out talking about how this is a difficult to- a topic to talk about. We have to, but we have to discuss it. You know, it's one of those things where people don't want to talk about race, but we've got to discuss it.
0: Yeah, you, you know, I just had to interject here because it's hundred percent correct what you said. It's it's uncomfortable to talk about race, and we, if we could have our way here on the right take or just the right in general, we wouldn't be talking about this stuff. But unfortunately, the left has brought it to this point. If remember Obama 2008, there was this kind of the, the first, arguably even his first term, really, or like the first three years of his first term, was this kind of air of good feelings. Oh, we just elected our first black president. We, we could really get along. Obama had a lot of support from Republicans. He won pretty handily. He even won a red state like Indiana. We were willing to work with them, but then we all found out what kind of a person Obama really was and how he was harboring these kinds of feelings that are were eventually expressed more directly, more in an uncensored light, if you will, by Black Lives Matter. So they have brought it to this point. Everything up to this point, from George Floyd up to the latest stuff in Minnesota, they brought it to this point. They have forced us to this point. That is why we are talking about it here at The Right Take. Otherwise, we would be happy to talk about things, broader things like foreign policy or trade policy or immigration or the things that President Trump championed. But we are here, and yes, we have talked about it a lot in the last few episodes especially because they have left us with no choice. Well,
1: they have completely taken over the left in this country. They uh, And the thing is they're not even leftists. A black nationalist is not a leftist because if you had – if he had his way and they had complete black separatism – In their black country, a black nationalist wouldn't necessarily have to be a leftist. He could be. They'd probably uh, be
0: more right wing, if anything. I mean, in America, certainly like Malcolm X was very pro gun. You know, they, you know, for the longest time, they, they. Black Americans did go to church a lot. You know, it, it was. You could argue that, like, certainly, Black nationalists. That there's always the memes that like Black nationalists and white nationalists actually could get along. Obviously, that they don't like each other, but they agree on a lot of the same fundamentals. But, the, but on yeah,
1: economics, I, like, there's no there's no reason why a Black nationalist has to be on the left when it comes to economics. That economics is completely separate for what they're. In fact, whenever they talk about economics. They always tie it back into how it helps their race. Oh, yeah, like that's Black us-
0: Wall Street, like the stuff that they had going before segregation, before uh, desegregation and stuff like that?
1: Well, anytime they talk about uh, – if you talk about, talking about socialism, like the only th- uh, reason why any of them would favor socialism is if they can be convinced that it would help black people. If they don't think that it would help black people, then they're going to be for capitalism 100 percent. They're not really – that's why socialists are so anti-critical race theory because they see criti- – a real socialist sees critical race theory as a th- complete threat to socialism because it diverts the attention of the black working class away from class-based disparities and focuses on race-based disparities. Oh, and so interesting. as we're seeing in this in this article, um, this this lady this uh, who writes in Phylon, Camera, Phyllis Jones. So she points out how this uh, – this, the uh, public insta- – this initiative to eliminate racial and ethnic disparities, this came out in 98. They're wanting to eliminate all the disparities by 2010. And so if you're going to talk about eliminating health disparities, first of all, you need to prove to your reader that health disparities exist, and she doesn't even do that. She, she figures, well, that's a given. We, we know that there's health disparities. We know that white people are treated differently than black people in the institutions, so we don't even get a, a discussion about or a, any proof on that the fact that health disparities exist. We just have to accept that as fact. So we have to jump right over that. OK, well, we've got to give them that. OK, so health disparities exist. We have health disparities. Now we've got to find out why health disparities exist. So you, I'm sure if people could come up with several theories of why we have disparities in health between white patients and black patients. So she offers three explanations. So she writes – Racial health disparities are produced on at least three levels, differential care within the healthcare system, differential access to health care and differences in exposures and life opportunities that create different levels of health and disease. All right. So the first two, let's take them one by one. Differential care within the healthcare system. That again, that's something that you that's a pretty bold charge. You're assuming that doctors and nurses treat white people and black people differently based on their race. I'm going to need to see some evidence if you're going to make that claim. The second one, we've got differential access to health care. OK, so the idea that black people don't have the same access to health care. OK, I can see that. So on average, we can understand we can take it as a given that black people on average are poorer than white people on average. We don't need to see statistics to see that. We see that every day. That's and especially the wealth. Gap, the racial income gap has been closed a little bit in the past 20 years, but this is in 2002. So back then, yeah, we. I'll I'll give that. I'll accept that. Um, But then we – and you could argue that that's more of an income-based disparity because poor white people, they're going to have less access to health care than rich black people. But moving on, we see the differences in exposure and life opportunities that create different levels of health and disease. So when I look at this, I'm saying, okay, well, we know that the obesity rates among black Americans are higher than the obesity rate among white Americans on average. And I can look at the third reason she gives and say, OK, well, different levels of uh, differences in exposure and life opportunities. OK, well, you can make the argument that the reason why obesity rates are higher among black Americans is because they don't have access to the same information that white Americans do to make good health choices. And this is true with a lot of poor white people. We see poor white people who are overweight compared to wealthy white people. Now, a foreigner would look at that and they say, wait a minute, why are the, the poor people in your society – fatter than the richer people in your society because in their country especially if they're a very very poor country they may think well people who have wealth they tend to be a little bit heftier because they can they have more food they have access to food because they have more money whereas the poor people are nearly starving to death so they tend to be thinner but the reason is because in america if you're poor you tend to only be able to afford foods that are unhealthy it's just the way our you know our food system is set up in in this country foods that are less healthy for you tend to be cheaper but also because if you're poor you're going to tend to not have time to devote to exercise you're not you're going to be spend a lot more time working you're not going to be able to access say health journals like that's a leisure activity be able to read health journals and be able to find out ways to improve your health be able to go on a diet you know be able to afford healthier foods and be able to afford exercise and all this uh, be able to worry about your your image your body image those tend to be things that the middle class and the upper middle class are going to be able to afford whereas poor people can't afford that but if we dig into what Jones is talking about she's not even talking about that like she's not saying we need to find ways to expose poor people to healthier foods like what Michelle Obama was offering to let's make health let's make school lunches healthier this isn't even what she's talking about so if we dig uh, do we dig beneath the surface and let's uh, dig into what she's saying here She offers some ideas to address these causes. Now, notice – keep in mind, this is way back in 2002. This is long before BLM ever came into existence. This is long before critical race theory went mainstream. Most people, if they heard these terms back then, they wouldn't have any idea what you're talking about, whereas today the terms she uses, they become widespread now. Like 70, 80 percent of Americans would recognize these terms. Okay, so she talks about differential care within the healthcare system. She addresses this. Here's some solutions she's all, she, she's offering: monitoring a physician practice. So, what are we going to put? Uh, put cameras in the in the doctors' offices to make sure that they're not treating black people as less than white people. Implementation provider reminder systems adherence to treatment protocols, training of a more racially, economically, and linguistically diverse healthcare force at all levels. So, affirmative action in the healthcare system. So, never mind if someone is more qualified to be a good doctor. We've got to have have these racial quotas. Provisions of cultural competency. We hear that a lot nowadays. Or anti racism training to healthcare providers. In 2002, nobody would have known what cultural competency is. The idea of anti racism training would have been completely Orwellian to people in two thousand two if you had told someone that this is what people are gonna this is what white people are gonna be subjected to in twenty years. They're gonna have to sit just because they're white, they're all gonna have to sit through these anti racism training. Can you imagine imagine you've got a, a white employee and a black employee and they're talking about they're just they just strike up a conversation and the white employee is like, No, I can't hang out later today. I can't go out for for drinks and or coffee or whatever because I have to go to my anti racism training. Uh, can you <laughs> i mean think about that if you're if you're black and your white colleague says no i can't hang out i got to go to my anti racism training it's kind of like if you're in if you're in a in a private school and it's like you got a student's like no i can't go i can't go play because i'm in timeout i've got to go i've got to go sit in timeout um after school but this is the system that we're creating where white employees they have to go have their timeout and they didn't do anything wrong they they what they did wrong was being born white because they were born white they have to go through these anti racist trainings that their black colleagues don't have to go through because they were born into the preferred race. But this is something that these HBCU academics were proposing decades ago. This is, a, again, this was a 2002 article. And she's demanding that in order to eliminate the differential care within the healthcare system, we need provisions of cultural competency and anti racism training to healthcare providers. She wants community oversight of healthcare institutions. I don't know about you, but I don't want my plumber and electrician over, uh, have an oversight authority of my doctor. Uh, they don't really know anything about that. She wants adequate numbers and training for translators. So whenever we bring in all of the non-Americans to replace Americans, they will have ready, readily available access to translators. Another uh, another way we could fix this problem is just making sure that no one can immigrate here if they can't speak English. <laughs> that would that would fix that problem. But the okay, so moving on to the differential access of healthcare. Here's how she wants to uh, wants to fix that. Universal healthcare coverage. She wants a national health system. Training of a more racially, economically, and linguistically diverse health workforce at all levels. And a mechanism for assuring the appropriate geographic distribution of physicians. Okay, so now moving on to the only area that I thought would might be a legitimate You know, legitimate criticism of the healthcare system, where we have differences in exposure and life opportunities by race. But the you know the way that I would fix something like that is provide healthy lunches. Like I didn't. A lot of Republicans were critical of Michelle Obama's lunch program, just because they were making kids eat unhealthy or eat healthy food. Um, I don't have a problem with that. Like that's one way that you could actually improve the. You know, health knowledge and get people, kids to be thinking about healthy food options from a young age, but that's not what she's talking about. So, the way she wants to fix the differences and exposures and life opportunities is to have a national conversation on racism. She wants to have a national campaign against racism, confront institutionalized racism through examining structures, policies, practices, and norms, reparations to African Americans. And uh, she's got a pyramid. To, uh, so, it was at the very top, you've got Quality of health care, uh, access to health care, and at the very bottom of the pyramid, environmental expenses, uh, exposures and opportunities. And the way at the very root of the system, the way you fix the inequality of health care opportunities for, to, for black Americans, it goes to re-educating white Americans on their racism and it, the whole this is what the whole system is based on. So she writes racism is an important aspect of our social environment that is increasingly being discussed at both national and international levels. Recent documents that cite the importance of paying attention to racism and its impacts on health include the Declaration and Program of Action from the Third World Conference Against Racism, Racial Discrimination, Xenophobia and Related Intolerance convened by the United Nations in 2001, the report Unequal Treatment Confronting Racial and Ethnic Disparities in Healthcare published by the Institute of Medicine in 2002, And the resolution research and intervention on racism as a fundamental cause of ethnic disparities in health adopted as a public policy by the American Public Health Association in 2001. So note the decades 2001, 2001, 2002, 2001. And uh, the the initiative that she cited earlier was from 1998. So all of the uh, when it comes to so-called racism in healthcare, the groundwork was laid for this two decades ago. All of this – the World Health Organization, the United Nations, the HBCU's journals, all of these academics were pushing for this stuff at the turn of the millennium, and we're just now seeing how their hard work is paying off. And this is something that people on the right were completely blind to because people on the right were focused on economics. Focused on making sure that the socialists don't take over America, making sure that we don't get – we keep the marginal tax rate at 35 percent and we don't let it rise to the big bad 39 percent. These were issues that the right was focused on, and they weren't paying attention to what these underground radicals had been doing and the groundwork that they were laying all along.
0: At at the time, I think the right was more focused on foreign policy than anything else. You know, 2002, we were just getting started with the – 9/11 had happened, and we hadn't yet. We had already invaded Afghanistan. We were getting ready to go to Iraq. That was, you know, the rise, the final pinnacle of neoconservatism was happening at that time.
1: Yes, they weren't paying any attention to this. Uh, We were so focused on going over and removing Saddam Hussein that the threats from within our country weren't being paid attention to. But she goes on, a growing number of scientists hypothesize that racism is a fundamental cause of racial and ethnic disparities in health outcomes. Of official sources who hypothesize that racism is the reason why we have disparities in health outcomes. And, you know, this is something that you should definitely the people, the medical community should definitely discuss. There are uh, higher rates of of obesity among Black Americans uh, than White Americans, there are higher rates of obesity among Southern Americans than non-Southern Americans, and these are serious issues that anyone who loves their country and cares about their country and the health of its citizens should discuss. We should definitely discuss why these disparities exist, how we can solve the the questions of you know how we can solve these issues, and you know incre- make it so that all Americans are healthier. Because if you go to other countries, especially in Europe. You don't have disparities like that. Most people are thin. Most people are fit and healthy. And that's one of the reasons why their health care costs aren't as high as Americans health care costs. But you can't have serious discussions about these issues, about racial health disparities, if white people aren't afraid to call out black people for being unhealthy and making unhealthy life choices. And if black people are more focused on taking money away from and giving reparations to black people and using health care and the health uh, inequalities and disparities as a tool to achieve their end. Because the end here isn't social cohesion. The end here isn't a healthy nation. The end goal for uh, for Jones and these other uh, these other black academics is reparations. And this is what Brian Dine of the World Socialist website on the Boston area hospital that was offering preference that is going to be offering Preferential treatment based on race was talking about. Dine was talking about how what we're seeing in the Democratic Party is we've got a small number. We've got a black upper middle class that is jealous of its power and prestige and position in society, and it's using race to maintain its position. And it's more – it's not really interested in eliminating the wealth gap. It's not really interested in eliminating inequality. It's, It's interested in maintaining its position. And if you go back and you look at the Austro-Hungarian Empire before its collapse, this is what happened right before its collapse. You had all these different ethnic groups. None of them were loyal to the state. None of them were loyal to the nation. You had – in each group, you had class-based systems. So like for instance, in the, with, among the Romanians, the Romanians in Transylvania, you had different classes. And among the Romanians, you had an elite, and they would foment ethnic divisions for the purpose of maintaining their position. They weren't interested in eliminating wealth gaps. They weren't interested in bringing their people up to the same standards as the Hungarian peasants because the longer Romanian peasants stayed down, it allowed them to be able to maintain their power. And this is what we see. This is the same exact position we see with the black intellectuals and black upper middle class today. They're fine if the if, if poor black people remain poor. In fact, they're actually happier if they remain poor and these disparities continue to exist because it continues to fuel racial animosity. And the more racial animosity exists, the more they get to cling to their power. So Jones goes on to ask, what is racism? First of all, racism is a system. It is not an individual character flaw, nor a personal moral failing, nor a psychiatric illness. It is a system consisting of structures, policies, practices, and norms – That structures opportunity and assigns value based on phenotype or the way people look. And again, this is what we hear again and again from people who believe in critical race theory. They will argue that racism is not – it's not a position that a person holds. It's a system. It's a governing system. So that's why they'll argue that white – that black people cannot be racist because they don't hold power. White people hold power. Therefore, only white people can be racist. And this is, again, this is 2002. This lady is laying the groundwork and other similar academics at HBCUs are laying the groundwork for what would eventually completely take over the American left. She says, when we talk about racism at all in this country, it is usually discussed in this context. But at the same time that the system is unfairly disadvantaging some individuals and communities, it is also unfairly advantaging other individuals and communities. This issue of white privilege, again, this is from 2002, this issue of white privilege is much less frequently discussed in this country. But because she and other academics like her would make sure that they did their groundwork well, they they would do their work well, they would be persistent, it wouldn't be long before it would be discussed in this country. She goes on, Yet even more profoundly, the system of racism undermines the realization of the full potential of our whole society because of the waste of human resources. Because we do not value the potential contributions of the children living in our ghettos, barrios, or reservations, because we feel that we... Can get along very well, thank you. Without them, we do not invest in developing their genius, and it is lost. Just imagine where our nation would be if we truly valued all of our people as precious resources and allowed each the opportunity to know and develop their full potential. But again, this is something that we're just supposed to assume. She just assume, she doesn't give any any evidence that the nation does not value black people living in ghettos, Hispanics living in barrios or Indians living on reservations. She just makes a statement as if it's common knowledge everyone knows that the nation doesn't value black people or pretty much anyone who isn't white. I don't know that. Most white people don't know that. Like you're going to have to convince me. You're going to have to show me evidence that this is the reality that most white people don't value non-white people.
0: That's their worldview. They're just determined to convince the rest of us that that is the reality. But the
1: thing is, they don't even try to convince us that it's a reality. They just assume that that's the reality, and we should know that that's the reality. Like She, offered, she offers no proof that any of this, that America doesn't value non-white people. Here's something else that people are going to find very relevant today. Nobody 20 years ago when this article, 19 years ago when this article was published would have even – Fault like this. She says so that we've got institutionalized racism, personally mandated racism, and internalized racism. So she defines institutionalized racism as the structures, policies, practices, and norms resulting in differential access to the goods, services, and opportunities of society by race. So if we see differences, if we see disparities, we have to automatically assume that those disparities were caused by institutionalized racism. It doesn't have anything to do with the culture between different groups. You know so if you have let's just let's deracialize it, let's go let's just grab European examples. So by this definition, if we go to Europe and we see that Germans have more money on average than Italians. Germans uh, are more productive on average per hour than Italians, and we see that Germans make better products than Italians or that they have higher test scores than Italians. They're more successful overall in whatever you know competency you want to name than Italians. Then we have to assume that the reason why Germans are more successful than Italians is because the European Union favors Germans over Italians and that there is institutionalized xenophobia that favors Germans over Italians. It, it has nothing to do with their culture. It's not because Germans are raised a certain way and Italians are raised a different way. We have to automatically assume that the reason why Germans are better at these particular, in these particular areas – and that they have more success in these areas than Italians is because the European Union favors German Germans over Italians. And there is therefore institutionalized xenophobia in the European Union, which is nonsense. It's absolutely nobody in their right mind <laughs> would think that. I mean, people, Italians might argue that the European Union is, does favor Germany over Italy. But I don't think any of them would say that the reason why Germans are more successful, I don't know, in car manufacturing is because of institutionalized xenophobia that has somehow favored Germany over Italy. And it, you can even draw that down to Americans of Norwegian descent versus Americans of Irish descent or Americans of German descent versus Americans of English descent and argue that it's because of institutionalized racism against this particular group, against Polish Americans. That's why Polish Americans aren't as successful as Norwegian Americans, which this is nonsense. Nobody nobody in their right mind would assume that. But because, uh, because black intellectuals, do not want to look at the root causes of inequality they do not want to they don't it's like they don't that want to fathom they don't even want to go there they don't even want to think that maybe some of the reasons why we see institutional differences and uh at achievement gaps is because of culture and not because of racism they don't even want to assume that they don't even want to discuss that and, you know if, uh, so the whole point is to discuss ways to eliminate the disparities between black patients and white patients, to eliminate the health disparity between whites and blacks in America. If you're going to – find solutions to this problem. Well, first of all, you can't just assume that there's a problem. You've got to provide evidence that there's a problem. But if you're going to provide solutions to this problem, you need to discuss all possibilities. You need to even discuss possibilities that might make black people uncomfortable. I mean, she's more than happy to discuss possibilities that make white people uncomfortable. And look, these are issues that should be discussed. Is there racism in the healthcare system that needs to be addressed? This is certainly something that should be opened up. But if you're going to discuss that, you need to also discuss Do we have a cultural problem with black Americans that they themselves need to look at and need to look at ways to address? Uh, I mean, as anyone who listens to the show knows, I'm from Alabama. Alabama has a serious problem with obesity. This is the reason why people in Alabama have end up having greater health problems than, say, people in Connecticut or Vermont. Uh, It doesn't hurt my pride at all to say that this is something I mean, it's certainly something I'm embarrassed about as someone from Alabama. But this is something that because I care about people from Alabama, I want people in Alabama to address. But uh, because black academics aren't necessarily don't necessarily care about fixing these issues, they just want to use they don't address these problems from a cultural perspective. Because they're not interested in solving the problems. They're interested in using the problems to advance their own ideological-driven positions, which – here's the thing. If black – the more political power black people gain, the more political power and more economic power black intellectuals and black academics gain. Because as we saw with the leaders of the Black Lives Matter movement, the more traction Black Lives Matter gains, the more money the leaders of the Black Lives Matter movement get, the more houses they buy, the more – uh, the more airplanes they can buy, the more trips overseas they can buy. They get to buy houses with air, you know, with their own runways and in indoor swimming pools. And this is the problem. This is why you can't fix these issues because you have a black intellectual elite that refuses to allow these issues to be fixed. They like the problems because the problems make them rich. Okay, so the second point is personally mediated racism. She defines personally mediated racism. As prejudice and discrimination, where prejudice is differential assumptions about the abilities, motives, and intents of others by race and discrimination is differential actions toward others by race. She says these can be either intentional or unintentional, like institutionalized racism. Personally mediated racism includes acts of of omission as well as acts of commission. It manifests as lack of respect, poor, no service, or failure to communicate options, suspicion, like shopkeeper vigilance everyday avoidance, including street crossing, purse clutching, or empty seats on public transportation, devaluation, surprise at competence, stifling of aspirations, scapegoating. So let's think about, let's bring this up with some of the things we hear today. So it manifests as lack of respect, poor or no service, or failure to communicate options. So let's say if you have a white order taker at a fast food restaurant and a white customer comes up And she mentions to the white customer, "Oh, we have a special today that says such and such. You know that offers this." The next customer is black, and she forgets to mention the special. Okay, well, the black person, if he or she knows about this author, knows about the journal, which a lot of black people do, because these black intellectuals have done their homework and they've understood that if they can put this material into the hands of average everyday black people, then average everyday black people will be able to notice racism in everyday life. Whereas if they weren't enlightened to critical race theory beforehand, the average black person, they would just be normal. They would figure, okay, well, they would hear the girl mention the special to the white customer, and when she didn't mention it to them, they wouldn't assume it was because of racism. They would just think, okay, well, she figures that I overheard, or she just forgot to mention it, and they would move on. They would order, they would move on with their day. But because she forgets to mention it to them, they can automatically say, okay, well, that's that's evidence of racism. If so, when they're asked when when at their next roundtable meeting with their fellow grievance uh, their their grievance comrades, and they're asked, "Have you experienced racism?" they can say, "Yes, the Wendy's order taker refu- did not offer me the same, didn't remind me of the same special that she offered the white customer in front of me."
0: It's true, yeah. They really do look down on black people or people of uh, non-white people who don't see racism in everyday happenings. They, that's why they feel that, that we need to get these people educated to realize their oppression, to realize what they called microaggressions back in the day, like little right, right, subtle right. things. That that was such a... I remember that word was such a big deal when I went to college. Unironically it was used by the left in like 2014, 2015. It was hilarious. But yeah, they absolutely will go out of their way to say... Uh, I believe that actually could fall under the fallacy of confirmation bias. That essentially, mm-hmm. you know, if they... Assume that, that this kind of discrepancy happens, and there's no other reason for it than just assume by default because you have been taught. Oh, things like this are going to happen to you. You're going to be fundamentally disadvantaged because of your race. Then, therefore, they will assume. Oh, well, this must be because of my race.
1: Well, and you mentioned you mentioned microaggressions. So everything that she is describing here, as I go on, you're going to see the All of this stuff are is what the left today would describe as microaggressions, but it wasn't in the common parlance at the time. Like if you went back to 2002 and you mentioned microaggressions, people wouldn't have no any idea would, what you're They would about.
0: have no clue what that word even means. Right,
1: but the, the like groundwork – is it a work,
0: crime being committed against microscopic plankton or something? <laughs> yes, <Yeah. laughs>
1: but the groundwork for that is being laid in the early 2000s, and by the time you got to college, 2014, 2015, it was already – they had already attached a name for it, and they, they had already put it into academia because I guarantee you if you went to your college back in 2002 or 2003, none of that stuff would be there. You wouldn't have heard about any of this stuff. And so this lady is saying that suspicion, like a shopkeeper vigilance – Everyday avoidance, including street crossing, purse clutching, empty seats on public transportation. People are not in uh, people are not born with prejudice against people because of their race. People develop prejudice against people based on race because of personal negative experiences or because other people have told them about about negative experiences that they have had. This is a natural God given ability that we have for self-preservation. For instance, if if I and I'm not I'm not comparing human beings to animals. I'm just comparing the, the experience we have. If I go into a neighborhood and I know that there's a house where there's a Doberman pincher who sometimes gets out of his yard and he has been known to bite children before, or he's been known to bite people before, I'm not going to jog in that neighborhood. I'm going to go to a different neighborhood and jog just because and Now that Doberman may never get out again, or maybe a Rottweiler or whatever. He may never get out of his pen again. His owners may have made sure they keep him chained up on a chain that can't be broken and may never happen again. But I'm not going to go around that neighborhood. Now, as time goes on and people – the memory of that attack fades, people will start going back to that neighborhood. And as long as there are no more attacks, people will finally start to warm up and they'll remember, hey, you know, years ago there was an attack here, but the dog is old now. You know, he doesn't attack anybody and the neighbors make sure they keep their dogs on leashes. This is the same way with human beings. People – naturally want to self-preserve their body, their family, and their possessions. And if they have negative experiences with certain kinds of people, they are going to be more cautious around those kinds of people. And it works the other way around. If black people have negative experiences with white people, they're going to avoid white people. If they hear about negative experiences, they're going to avoid white people. And this is why it's, we should be very careful about race baiting, because when you race bait, you will get people scared of other people when there's no grounds for being scared of other people. But Cameron Phyllis Jones, she uh, she attributes suspicion to racism, the natural urge that we have of self-preservation. So if you work at a CVS and certain people who look homeless have come in and shoplift before certain people of a certain race or a certain gender or certain age have come in, it could be teenagers you may be suspicious of teenagers. Anytime a group of teenagers comes in because teenagers in the past have shoplifted, you you are perfectly justified to be suspicious of teenagers if you've had bad experiences in that particular store, or that particular area of town with teenagers. That is normal. All right. The third one is internalized racism, which she defines as acceptance by members of the stigmatized races of negative messages about their own abilities and intrinsic worth. And she gives examples such as embracing whiteness. This is another term that we hear a lot today, which back then when she wrote this article, nobody would know what the concept wasn't even in everyday speech. She attributes when black people use hair straighteners, bleaching creams, skin tone, stratification within communities of color. And that's another thing, communities of color. This wasn't in common everyday speech back then. People didn't refer to communities of color, people of color back then like they do today. And um, and the white man's ISIS-Colder syndrome, I've never heard of that. Have you ever heard of that, Eric? The idea that people – that black people would say the white man's ice is colder?
0: I actually may have heard of something. I've never heard of it. Heard, Maybe I've, in college, but I – like I, I get what, what that's implying. They're that like, oh, they got the colder and fresher ice, but like I – I don't know. I mean – I've I, I never heard of it up in my life. Believe but, me, I, I have heard a lot of crazy things when I was in school. I definitely had to take a few of those grievance studies well, classes. You went,
1: you went to college in California,
0: so that's, yes, about, that's, I a, did. that's a lot different. Oh, man. I could tell so many stories about the stuff I was taught as fact in that school.
1: But uh, she uh, also says self-devaluation, racial slurs is nickname, So like using uh, like the N-word in a, in a joking way, she's uh, claiming that this is internalized racism. So allegedly she's claiming that when black people use that word to themselves when they're joking around, she's using it as a term of endearment that they're internalizing racism against themselves, which is ridiculous. This is the most ridiculous. Like You've got to be a complete nut job to to write something like this and put it in a in a in a medical journal. Uh, But, yeah, she says, although all three of these levels of racism can have distinct impacts on health, it is clear that addressing only personally mediated racism or internalized racism will not change the structural conditions in which stigmatized groups find themselves. And remember, she seems to have gotten lost track at first, but she's bringing it back. All of this is allegedly tied to disparities in health care and health treatment of black and white Americans. So all of this, all this tangent that she went on. Defining racism, she's saying that all this ties into these are reasons why we see black people being treated, being discriminated against in the healthcare system. So she says the role of public health scientists in confronting racism includes the following clarifying what race is and what it is not, vigorously investigating the basis of observed race associated differences, conceptualizing and measuring racial climate as an important aspect of the social environment. Developing individual and aggregate measures of racism on three levels. The levels she mentions, institutionalized, personally mediated, and internalized. Articulating a scientific roadmap for understanding and addressing the impacts of racism on health. Monitoring outcomes for evidence of institutionalized racism. Examining structures, policies, practices, and norms to identify the mechanisms of institutionalized racism. Now, I can take any one of those bullet points, and I could come up with at least 10 different ideas for journal articles. So... We've got. Uh, looks like she listed seven different bullet points here, so that's seventy articles right there. And I'm sure if you had to had to brainstorm different articles as a critical race theorist, I'm sure you could come up with ten different articles for each one of these bullet points, and other people could too. And this is what has happened since 2002. So since since she put out these proposals, we have seen an explosion in academic journals and medical journals writing about how racist the American medical system is. If you go to JSTOR, if you go to Google Scholar, and you type in words like institutionalized racism healthcare, you put in something else like uh, medical racial discrimination or race-based medical practices, anything of that nature, you're going to find article after article after article alleging or assuming that the American healthcare system is racist. Jones is not arguing that... Because black people are poor and they have been historically discriminated against, they have less access to health care. She's taken it a step further and saying, because America is an institutionalized race we have institutionalized racism, we are a systemically racist country. White people discriminate against black people without even having to think about it that if you've got white doctors, white nurses, white medical practitioners. That because of the system that they grew up in, because of the country that they live in, they are automatically going to discriminate against black people. And many times they're going to discriminate against black people without even realizing it. So it doesn't – again, this is moving away from the income-based disparity. So this is something that that socialist author was pointing out, that these upper-middle-class black people, they don't care about eliminating the wealth gap. They care about using race as a bludgeon to implement – reparations to implement their race-based policies
0: yeah that actually probably explains why we talked about this before in a previous episode why there was such a clash between uh the bernie sanders movement and black lives matter you know why black lives matter activists stormed his stage and why they and it was certainly in 2020 why they ultimately went for joe biden over bernie because bernie doesn't care much about racial identity politics he gave some lip service to it but you could tell that was not something he really cared about when he ran for president
1: yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, Sanders, originally, his, his whole thing, he w- was the Occupy Wall Street candidate. And really, when you look at OWS, what destroyed that movement was the, the race-based stuff. Um, but Jones goes on, she says, uh, before proposing an approach to operationalizing racial climate, I asked the reader to answer the following question. How often do you think about your cast? Many of you are now staring at the page quizzically wondering what in the world I'm talking about. But if I were to ask the same question in India, it would be immediately understood and everyone would have an answer. Certainly, the answers would vary. The Dalits, the untouchables, more likely than Brahmins, to respond that they constantly think about their caste. India is a caste-conscious society. Caste is pertinent as a basis for social st- classification. And there are specific rules for assignment as well as differential opportunities and value accorded to different groups. There is a casteal climate in India that is very different from the casteal climate of the United States, even for Indians living in the United States. Although not caste conscious, the United States is a race conscious society with a highly charged racial climate. I propose that researchers operationalize racial climate by first assessing the pertinence of individual racial assignment using the following race conscious questions. How often do you think about your race? Now think about these struggle sessions that employees at corporations in America are now having to go through, that teachers are now having to go through, and the, this is one question that they would be asked: How often do you think about your race? Kind of like who was the lady, the D'Angelo lady, that wrote um, what was the name of that book that she wrote for white liberals to get them to think about their white privilege? Um,
0: uh white fragility.
1: White fragility, yes. Yeah. So this is this is this is some of the stuff that would have inspired D'Angelo and all the, those other uh, all the other woke white leftists. Okay, so as a solution, she says public health scientists therefore have a dual role in confronting institutionalized racism, both monitoring outcomes for evidence of institutionalized racism and examining structures, policies, practices, and norms to identify the mechanisms of institutionalized racism. That level of measurement will provide us with the scope of the problem and help target our intervention efforts. And this is what we see with the hospital in Massachusetts. By intervening in the system by preferring black patients to white patients, they see themselves as fixing the systemic racism. That they've been taught exists because you've got to remember this is 20 years ago. The doctors and the nurses and the uh, the people who are writing the medical journals now, they have come up in a system, in a university system that has drilled into them that what this lady is presenting is fact without having to present any evidence. So she concludes in order to confront institutionalized racism, public health scientists must join with all citizens uh, in naming racism asking the question how is racism operating here and this is what we're seeing in every facet of our society today this is what not just medical professionals but professionals in every single profession they're starting with the assumption that there is racism they're not questioning whether or not there is racism but uh, whenever they're confronting the, the questions of the day the how to operate their their businesses how to operate their schools they're start they're asking the question how is racism operating here today? and this is the society that they wanted to create they wanted to create a society when every when race consumes every asset every aspect of american society americans wake up in the morning and they the first thing they ask themselves is how can i not be racist today that is white americans they go to work and they're constantly questioning how am i what i'm saying is it racist what i'm doing is it racist it's kind of and it really is religious in and in, in nature when you think about it this is how many Christians who are overly obsessed about whether or not they're – and I'm sure a lot of Muslims think this way too. They're overly obsessed about whether or not they're displeasing God in every single moment of their life. They wake up and they think, OK, how can I not sin today? They go get breakfast, and as they're eating, they're thinking, OK, am I sinning? While I'm eating this breakfast, they're brushing their teeth. Am I sinning? Am I thinking sinful thoughts? And they they go to work. OK, I'll make sure I'm not sinning. And of course, the more they think about sin, the more they're actually going to sin. And if you continually think about it over and you're obsessed about it, OK, is that fault lustful or whatever? This is how they basically picked up Christianity and transferred it with this critical race theory. And yeah. the more people obsess about race, guess what? If you continually obsess about race, you're going to actually be racist if you continually obsess about race.
0: They literally end up creating the very problem that they claim. It's a self fulfilling prophecy, it's a self creating problem. And like you said, you know, they have shifted the goalposts so dramatically in our society and our culture that no one even stops to question, wait, are we really a racist society? It's been said before, if you tell a lie enough times, it becomes the truth. There really is no objective truth anymore. Objective truth, the facts don't even matter. All that matters is their reality that they have created for them, this idea that America is a racist nation. It's built on a lie. It is fundamentally a lie, but they have made it a truth. And that's why the least we can do is push back on that and continue to call that out for what it is, which is a lie, and say, no, we are prepared to push further back and go back to the very foundations of your assumption and make them question their reality and make those white Americans and other Americans who are caught in the middle question this reality that has been built for them. We have to push back and make them see and turn their truth into our truth. And that is what we are here for. That is what we do here at The Right Take. Unfortunately, that is all the time we have left. For this episode, this was certainly definitely one of our most in-depth episodes in quite some time. Tune in next week for episode number 17. We've already got some great stuff planned for that episode in particular. So stay tuned and we'll talk to you next week.